Morning Liberty. Hello, everybody. Thank you for stopping by. My name is Nate, and this is the Good Morning Liberty podcast. Today, my special ask for you is that you hit the subscribe button somewhere. Somewhere around your finger right now is a button that says subscribe. If you hit that button, we will automatically send our podcast to you when we, when we release a new episode every single day, which we do here at Good Morning Liberty. So do that. But today, very special day, and I got the opportunity to interview a state representative candidate for the Libertarian Party in Mississippi, Mississippi District 37. Her name is Vicki Rose. And we had a really, really great interview, talked about some of the politics going on in Mississippi, some of the different policies that they have, what could change, what could actually help the people in her district, because that's what we're all trying to do. At the end of the day, we've all got the same goal, and that goal is to create a better life for our children and those around us. And sometimes, sometimes doing that does not mean that you should institute all kinds of new government programs. Sometimes we actually find that new government programs can actually hurt people. Sometimes more of the same, more of the same thing that we've had for decades is not always a good option. And it can be scary sometimes to switch to something new, but sometimes it just needs to happen. Now, Vicki is not one of those, she's not a libertarian candidate that's just out there being anti-everything. That policy is terrible. We have to stop this policy. So she's out there actually proposing some real solutions to some of the real problems that people are having in her state. And that's something that I think we as liberty-minded people or libertarians really, really need to appreciate because we're really good at going online and saying, that's stupid. That's a terrible policy. That, that'll never work. We shouldn't do that. Taxation is theft. And all of those things are probably true, but what people really want to hear and what people really want to hear are these solutions because they're not always as obvious as we think they are. So I, I interviewed her. She's running for state representative in Mississippi. And the other thing I wanted to say was that it's, it's really important to support people in local elections. I was talking to her a little bit afterwards and, you know, we have a lot of people that it seems like we pay attention to everything in the national news that's going on. What did Trump say today? What's going on with the trade war? What, you know, what kind of crazy tweet was sent out today? We, we all know about those things and we pay attention to those like they are somehow going to affect our everyday lives. Whereas what Trump is saying really doesn't affect what we do on a daily basis all the time. But what can affect our daily lives are some of the policies that are being instituted on local levels in, in your own city or in your district or in your state. And that's where we can really start to turn things around for this country. It doesn't really start with this top-down, let's get the most libertarian person in the office of president, and then that's going to fix everything. That's not really how I see this going. I won't, I won't speak for Vicky on that, but that's not really how I see this going, because if your idea is that we're just going to have a top-down institution of all the policies that you believe in, well, that's not a whole lot worse than, than everyone else. You've got to have the society change. You've got to have the local levels change first. And then 
as time goes on that will graduate up to some of these bigger offices. Maybe we'll have a libertarian uh, U.S. congressman. Maybe we'll have a libertarian U.S. Senate person. But first, what we have to do is we got to have these libertarian mayors, maybe a state representative, maybe a state senator, maybe a governor sometime, and that's just going to keep moving up and up and up as time goes on, and it's going to make the Libertarian Party a more viable party because something we are dealing with right now is that people just aren't taking it seriously simply on the fact that they don't think that a Libertarian can win, and that tends to become its own self-fulfilling prophecy because if your problem with the party is that you don't think they have a chance, therefore you're not going to support them, that actually keeps them from ever having a, a chance in these elections. So we wanted to spotlight someone who is running as a Libertarian Party member for state representative in Mississippi because she's got some really great ideas, some really great proposals for things that could actually change the lives of the people in her district and make all of their lives much better and make her district and her state a much better place for people to come. And one thing I did want to say before we get switched over is in the first little bit of this conversation I noticed, um, I think we lost a little bit of the cell phone reception and it only lasts for like 10 or 15 seconds. So if you start to hear her phone cut out, I don't know if that was on my end, on my phone or on hers, but there's maybe 10 or 15 seconds where you can't exactly understand what she's saying. If that bothers you or you can't you can't stand to listen to to that kind of thing, you can't figure out what's going on, there's just a little button right there that says skip ahead 30 seconds. You can hit that, and then you won't have to deal with any more reception problems for the rest of the interview. So my apologies as far as that goes, but sometimes the technologies that we have, all these great things that we use on a daily basis – don't always perform in the most perfect manner that we would like them to perform in. So without further ado, here is my interview with Vicki Rose. Okay, so I am here with a state representative candidate from Mississippi, and it's District 37, I believe. And it is yes, Miss Vicki Rose. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this this morning, by the way. Uh, we actually met, I believe, at the Young Americans for Liberty conference, right? I think that was, let's see, where were we, in Memphis at that time? We were in Memphis. I think you were standing in line behind me, and we, first day, we started talking. <laughs> yeah. And we, uh, by the time. I think we hung out a little bit um that night, we were all kind of sitting around with, oh, what was that guy's name from the Libertarian Party? I'm going to blank on it now. Dan something. I don't know. Dan Fishman. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We were all kind of sitting around, and everyone was nice enough to allow my friend Charlie and I to uh, hang out with them, even though we didn't know anyone at the table whatsoever. But it still it, it still went okay. So everyone was being very, very kind to us that night. So we really appreciated it. But you're running for state representative, and you said today is a special runoff election. Is that right? Yes. The candidates in the primaries who did not receive 50 plus 1% of the vote on August 6th have runoff today. So it's all across the state in a variety of races. Okay. And and you, uh, when it comes to the election, which I believe I saw was on the 5th of November, so that's easy enough to remember for our libertarian audience, for sure. So if you're in that area, just remember, remember the 5th of November, that's when you need to go vote. But 
you're running against an incumbent, which can be very, very difficult because a lot of times I imagine they have a lot of built-in support, maybe some bigger corporate support. And what What is it that makes you different or maybe a better option than, than that current incumbent? Well, the first thing is my incumbent has been holding a seat since 1999. He has run unopposed since the year 2007, and I am his first and only opposition on this ballot since that length of time, okay. about 12 wow. years. And I do realize that I am getting a large majority of the vote from the disenfranchised voter as far as the incumbent goes. And so what, what makes me better than him? I bring something new, something fresh to the table. He has been voting the same way pretty much the entire length of his term. He's had a little bit of change on his vote with regard to education. But other than that, he's been doing the same thing over and over again. And as my constituents know, and as I'm out knocking on doors, when you do the same thing over and over again, you're going to get the same result. And the problem we have in Mississippi is our Students are leaving, and there are adult children who have left who want to come back to the state, and they feel like there's nothing here for them. But the biggest thing that we have going is we have the same people, 20 and 30 years, holding office. That means that we have the same thing happening over and over again with no changes being made, and my opponent is part of that problem. Yeah, we kind of see that happening around the country with local and national. Once someone gets in there, it's it's really hard to get them out because they get all that built-in support. They get all the money behind them. And uh, once you have all that money behind you in politics, it's it's tough to ever remove you from power, unfortunately. But uh, So I was going to ask you about schooling. Uh, my, mom's, my, my mom is an elementary school teacher, so I've always paid a lot of attention to, to public schooling and to a lot of the rules, the standards that the states put in place and now the federal government has in place, um, where do you stand on things like the standardized testing in public schooling, the regulations that are put on homeschooling, uh, the ideas behind school voucher systems? You know, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on what we need to do the, to take better care of our children and to make sure that they're learning and ready to go into life like they should be? Well, the very first thing we need to come to terms with as a country is the fact that the U.S. Department of Education is not doing any good for the country, for the parents, for the students, for the teachers. And when we can really fully grasp the way that it has entrenched itself into our school systems and stand up and say, hey, no more of this, we're going to really start to see a big change in our school system the way things are happening. So the standardized testing, you had asked about that. The majority of the reason that we have to do it is because of the strings that come attached from the federal dollars. If you want our money, says the U.S. government to the states, you have to do what we say. You have to function how we say. You have to do these tests and you have to perform according to our standards. But Education is not one size fits all. And as your mother knows in the classroom, it's not one size fits all because those children and her classroom are all different. And your mother, I'm in the midst of teaching, 
profession because they have passion, because they love children, because they love themselves, they love to learn, and they want to share their love. People, but they're not able to do that because of the stringent regulations and all of the requirements for testing and teaching to the test that they have to do constantly. And that's one of the arguments we hear in Mississippi a lot. And I will tell the teachers, I am opposed to all of this testing that we have to do. If we need to do any type of standardized testing just for a plumb line to see where we are with the rest of the country, I really don't like it. But if that's something we have to do, I think I did it great. In that was grade, that was it when I was in high school and high school. Let's just do that and stop using it as a standard to grade the schools because it's not working. When something's not working, you try something new. This isn't working. But yet, the people who create the curriculum continue to come to our legislatures and say, hey, I have this great curriculum. I haven't been able personally to investigate the money that's being put into the pockets of our lawmakers to incentivize them to continue pushing these particular standardized tests from particular companies. But I imagine there's a little bit of that going on. Vouchers, they're Pandora's box. I do not agree with the voucher system because once the government starts giving public money to individuals to use in a private capacity, eventually you might have a lawmaker who says let's pass a law that says that these entities who are receiving this voucher money must adhere to our standards when it comes to curriculum and the particular uh, things that are being taught in the classroom and in fact I had mentioned that as my opposition to vouchers and then I was filling out a survey for one of the uh, public education PACs there in Mississippi and that was their next question after it had asked me if I was, you know, a proponent of the voucher system. And the next question talked, you know, alluded to the fact that they wanted to do something like that, put more strings on the, you know, to control the school system to receive them. I'm a proponent of the scholarship tax credit system, though. That would be that would be the better choice in Mississippi to use for school choice. Yeah, that's one thing that people don't realize with vouchers where, you know, when I think about a school voucher system, I think it's, it. I feel, I feel it's a step in the right direction, but what people don't realize is that it's still just going to be money that has tons of strings attached to it. And really, once you attach all those strings, you're just dealing with more state-funded education at that point in time. It, it, it really doesn't change anything because then they're not going to let you have the money unless you do exactly what they want. So you you still end up with the same problem. Have you had any? Have you talked to any teachers around there that are having issues with uh, the Common Core standards? You guys have problems with that down there? Oh, absolutely! It's the teachers, it's the parents, uh, even administrators will talk to me to some degree about the headache that is involved with the standards of Common Core, the inability for the students to learn the things that they need to learn, their reading scores that are not going up, oh, but we were promised that their reading scores are going to go up. And it's just more evidence that education is not one size fits all. What works in New York State, what works in the state of Oregon or California or Illinois 
not necessarily going to work right here in Mississippi. And we need to start the process of unwinding ourselves from that big ball known as the Department of Education and allow the more local level authorities to make the determination for their own communities, in fact, because some mistakes can become burdensome also. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think rolling back some of that would be would be great. You know, my my mom, I, which I love, she she is now doing her own form of nullification when it comes to Common Core, and that and the fact that she is refusing to teach Common Core math in her in her uh, class, and uh, she the administrators haven't been entirely happy about it, but she's been teaching for twenty five years, and she was like, hey, if you don't like it then just get rid of me, but I'm not teaching this stuff. It doesn't make any sense. They can, they can barely do these things. There's no way I'm going to be able to teach them this common core way of doing of doing math right now. And, and she's dealing with, when she gets a new class coming in, she had one student that was actually on the reading level of that grade that she's teaching. So out of, out of the 25 students, I believe she has. So they're, they're not even doing those basic things properly. And we seem to be, I remember, you know, when I was younger, if you didn't do a good job in that grade level, you would get held back until you did a better job, and then you would finally be able to move forward. And that doesn't seem to be a thing anymore, right? It kind of seems like the public school systems are just pushing these kids through to, just to attach a diploma to them and get them out of the way. Have you seen that? Um, I don't know that I've seen that so much here in Mississippi. You talk about the students not being able to read. We have um, the third grade students are required. I believe it's, it's second going into or third. I think it's third going into fourth. They have to pass the reading test, and if they can't pass that, then they're held back. They they if they don't pass it the first time, they get a second chance before the very end of the school year. Uh, so they're doing more to try to require that. But I. I agree with you. When when we were younger, we if you didn't pass your grade as far as getting the actual schoolwork done during the week and allowing those grades to accumulate with a pass fail system, I don't know where we've gone from there. Yeah, it definitely seems like maybe in Mississippi you have a slightly better system than what my mom is dealing with in Illinois for for sure, which I think it would probably be obvious on its own. But I I watched uh, I watched some of your videos on Facebook and I saw you talking about the states the idea of expanding Medicaid. And you actually got up and in a room full of people and wh- where people were were arguing that we did need to expand Medicaid to help those who were not able to pay for their medical expenses or were not able to get treatments. Um, you were actually brave enough to stand up and say that you did not favor expanding Medicaid because, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you say why. Medicaid, as a surface, the biggest argument is how much it's going to cost the people of Mississippi if we do decide to open up and expand Medicaid. Uh, they're, they're, at, with that argument alone, you hear people saying, well, it's already our money. So we need to take it because it's our money. Mississippi receives $20 billion more annually from the federal government than it actually pays them in taxes. I would like to know where is that money that we're already paying in that we're not getting? 
back. So, just a second. Sorry about that. <laughs> but no why wouldn't I expand Medicaid on a more human level? We already have people that are on Medicaid or even Medicare, and they're being hurt by the system. Doctors are not taking on new clients that use Medicaid, but yet we're going to give this big grand hope to a new set of people in the population, which is to be about 300,000. And we're going to say, hey, look, you have insurance now. You can go get your preventative medicine and you can stop going to our hospitals for your, for your preventative care because you can't go anyplace else. And you can make a hospital stop closing, feeling the need to close because you're using the emergency room too much. But doctors aren't taking on new patients. Doctors aren't getting reimbursed. A doctor can volunteer their time and do more good and help an individual more than if they were to use Medicaid and, to, and accept Medicaid. I'm sorry. Yeah, In fact, I've spoken with doctors and they've said, I've asked them, if your medical malpractice insurance would be covered, would you volunteer four hours or more a week to serve serve people who needed the help? No questions asked as far as their income and, and what's going on in their life. And he said, absolutely. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, that's a system that I heard you propose that idea, and that was the first time I'd actually heard anyone speak of that idea before. It's something that I think we could actually implement on the national level because we have a lot of doctors, and you mentioned basically trading time, say four hours, that you would work and not receive payment from the patients. In exchange, you would get your malpractice insurance paid for. And could you just imagine how many doctors we have in the country I mean, I would think a very high percentage of them would be willing to trade four hours per week to get their malpractice insurance paid for. And if you just had that, it would be amazing. Sorry. sorry, no, I was just saying that would be an amazing change for people if you would have, you would end up having these these clinics pop up or these different offices pop up where doctors would come in and exchange free time to get that time paid, to get their malpractice insurance paid for. And that that could be a far better way to help people than just throwing state money at people's insurance. I actually heard about the idea from a gal who's watching YouTube and she and her husband did it in New Jersey. Well, I think they're still doing it. And they're between the two of them. They're both doctors and they each do six hours a week and they're seeing 300 patients a month. No questions asked. And they're able to help them with their preventative care and their medicine and whatnot. And, they're not going to the emergency room anymore. They're not being a burden on the healthcare system and in the end on the taxpayers. And when you have a healthy Mississippi, you're going to have a happy Mississippi because your quality of life goes up and you're going to be more productive in society. Think of the number of individuals who do not work because they're in pain. I have one woman in my district who uses Kratom, which is something I've been able to be an advocate for. I don't use the substance, but I'm an advocate for individual rights and liberties. And she hasn't been able to work because of her stomach pain. She can't go to the doctor because it costs too much. She can't afford insurance and she cannot afford the uh, prescription opioids, but she uses Kratom and now she can go to work because she doesn't have pain anymore. Now, let's just multiply that times the tens of thousands of millions of people who are in the same situation. We have a more productive society. 
Now, the, the, how do we pay for this? We don't want to take it out of the pocket of the taxpayer. So let's model it after the scholarship tax credit system. I'm opposed to taxes, but they're there right now. So let's give a tax break to individuals and corporations who contribute to a fund that would manage this system that would allow doctors to apply for the uh, medical malpractice insurance being covered. Well, that's something that's you said you oppose taxes, but they are here right now. And I think that's an important point to make because you are running, you're a Libertarian Party candidate, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, so you're, you're running as a Libertarian Party candidate, but you're also saying that we need to try to work within the system that we have. Let's try to change it over time. But you're not one of those candidates that is just coming in saying, let's abolish all the taxes, get rid of everything, strip the whole system down to nothing, and the free market's going to pop up and take care of everything. Now, I think that that would happen over generations of time, but we can't exactly just come in and tear the entire system down in in the first week. You know, we need to be able to work within the system and and get people on the track that they that they need to be on. So, one thing I liked in one of your videos was that you said you are proposing solutions, and it's one of the problems I think we have as libertarians in the fact that we we like to be anti-everything or just come out and say that that's a terrible policy, that's a terrible policy, that would never work, that's, you know, taxation and stuff, that's bad, let's not do that. But we're not coming up with so many, with a whole lot of solutions that actually affect people right now. And so you're actually proposing solutions. I mean, that doesn't that seem like a, a lot better option right now? It does. When you think, about if you were to walk down a path and you start walking and you realize, oh my goodness, I took a wrong turn and you walked a mile the wrong way. Well, you, in order for you to get to where you need to be, you have to turn around, you have to rewalk that mile and then walk another one or two miles. By the time you walk the one mile, now it's two miles down to where you should be. And that's what we have to do as a vocal government system, as a state government system, and as a country. We have to be willing to turn around, make a 180, and walk down that path in the right direction. So it's not going to happen overnight. We have systems in place that we have adopted that we have to slowly weed out. I, I spoke with one of the, uh, he's currently a presidential candidate for uh, the um, libertarian ticket, Arvin Bora. I spoke with him at convention in New Orleans when he was very vocal about abolishing the U.S. Department of Education. And I said, you know what? If you were to cold cut the U.S. Department of Education off cold turkey, you, the results that you would have are not going to be the same as they are maybe in your community. I don't know what kind of community he lives in. Maybe he lives in an affluent community where it isn't such a problem, but when school lets out in my community, crime goes up for about a month because the students that are not in school any longer, that don't have school, they have a lot of free time on their hands and there is an increase in theft and it happens right in literally my backyard, quite literally. <laughs> and if we cut these programs and these systems off cold turkey, the people will suffer. We have to be willing 
to slowly get ourselves out of it. And we need to find those solutions and those ways to do it while holding our elected officials feet to the fire and demanding transparency and saying we're tired of the bureaucrats who are taking advantage of us. These unelected individuals who are coming to you, the elected official, picking their hand out, saying we want more money. And we expect you, the elected official, to tell them no more. We are cutting you off. We are weaning you off of the system because the people matter more than whatever little projects that you think are really important. The rights are being taken away everywhere we turn, and we have to get back to a system of republic government. Well, speaking of people's rights being away, you know, once you get out of school and you are healthy and you decide that you want to start your own business, maybe, what what kind of occupational licensing problems are you guys dealing with there in Mississippi? Because we hear about these all over the country where you need to get your license to be able to braid hair or to be able to do nails and things like that, where really it's just another barrier in front of people. Do you guys have a lot of a lot of occupational licenses that, that people have to get to have a business there? This is Mississippi. Why don't we? <laughs> we have the number seven is what it is. Uh, the Board of Cosmetology in Mississippi is rated the seventh most, uh, what do you call it? They have the most bur- more burdens than any other state. For example, we have a young woman who is uh, who has called up the Institute for Justice, and she is suing the Board of Cosmetology of the State of Mississippi. She's an eyebrow threader, and she does not have required to do. I think it's credits or classes in order to become an eyebrow threader, but none of these classes talk about eyebrow threading. Uh, she also would have to go through a test at the end, a demonstration test to demonstrate that she's done what she she can do what she had learned. It doesn't have eyebrow threading in there anyway. She came from here from Nepal. She opened up a business right here in my backyard, actually the backyard of my district. And she hired four people in a neighboring community and the state came in and shut her down. Five people lost their jobs because she wasn't getting permission from the state. We have other things like in 2016, we ended up deciding that auctioneers need to get permission from the state to be an auctioneer. You have to get a license now. My opponent voted for that. Little things like that. Wow, a license to be an auctioneer. That's that's um that's interesting because you're you're literally asking people what price they would like to pay for something, and and you're it's complete freedom to be able to pay as much as you're willing to pay, and and you would actually have to get a license from the state. It seems more like a form of extortion than really something that is going to actually help the people, which is what it is said it, it says that's what licenses are supposed to do but what i i think we see a lot of times are the people who are already entrenched in those industries they're in favor of more and more licenses because it's people who are trying to come up that can't afford to get it it makes it harder on their competition that's it doesn't seem like it's a good thing for the average individual at all 
I can certainly understand the argument from somebody who has already gone through the process. They went through the schooling or they jumped through all the hoops and they crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's in order to become legally available to perform a certain function in society. And then all of a sudden we're going to say, hey, we're going to cut this off. You don't have to do this anymore. Oh, but wait, I had to do all of that. And that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. I don't think uh, the pushback is necessarily from the people who want to decrease competition. It's from the people saying, hey, it's not fair. I had to do my time. I have to do theirs. And that's a change of the heart that we need we need to, to look at, really, and, and work with. But we do have the problem with those who are regulating, controlling the regulators. And that's what licensing does. That's what getting permission from the state to create a product or whatever it is that you're doing. The, the big corporations who are supposed to be regulated, they end up regulating the regulators and creating the rules and leveling the playing field for themselves instead of everyone else. Well, I'm glad that uh, may, hopefully we can get someone in there that understands that this is a big issue. And one thing that I saw while looking through Mississippi's laws, uh, one thing I liked, I believe Mississippi is a constitutional carry state. Is that right? We are. Nice. That's good. So um, do you have you seen people having a lot of issues with that? And then also with all of the things going on in the news, has there been a lot of talk of any sort of red flag laws that Mississippi needs to adopt? Or, and would you be in favor of anything like that? I'm absolutely opposed to red flag laws. We have enough regulations and requirements. Excuse me. I haven't looked at all of them, but we have enough regulations and requirements on the books to do background checks or whatever it is. And we have, we have systems in place that if someone is, a concern for somebody else, they can already, you know, call that in. And we have a system for our law enforcement, a protocol, I guess, is probably the better word for me to use for them to follow when those things happen. We do not need more restrictions and more laws. In fact, most of the time they start to contradict each other and people don't really, you know, know exactly how to follow all of them because they're afraid of getting in trouble. And I believe Master Trey, he talks about how some people get put in jail for um, firearm felonies because they don't fill up paperwork properly. They don't follow all of the rules just right. And that's a huge problem for people losing their rights. And in Mississippi, do we have people pushing back and asking for more restrictions? We do. I do have some people coming up and asking for me to get on the bandwagon with that. But for the most part in Mississippi, we like our constitutional carry, and I really don't see it going anywhere. Yeah, what I what I think you would see, uh, I, I'm just saying this for, for myself, but what I would imagine you'd see is that the law-abiding people are going to follow the law, and there's really nothing that you can do to stop people who are willing to break the law, to, to force them to adhere to that law. We, we have... You know, drug, certain drugs have been illegal in this country for decades, if not almost 100 years, and those are still on the street. People can still easily get a hold of someone and, and, and get whatever kind of drugs they want. So the idea that somehow we can create some kind of new standard that's going to remove all of the dangerous guns off the street seems a little, a little foolish and really puts a lot of 
a lot of faith in in the hands of the government, a lot of responsibility in their hands, uh, where they've proven they're they're not very good at at banning things and keeping certain things off of the street that they want to keep off of the street. So uh, you have a right to defend yourself. That That's not a right that the government gave you. It's a right that you were born with as a, as a human being. And I think cost, constitutional carry is an amazing law. I wish we had that here in Tennessee. We don't have constitutional carry. I did have to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to carry a gun. Um, but I am glad I at least don't live in Illinois or New York. Because uh, that would be a lot harder for sure. I do, I dog on Illinois a lot, by the way, because I'm from Illinois and I've been in I've been in Nashville now for about ten years. So I've seen the differences between a state that has a massive bureaucratic government, really huge government system, and then in Tennessee a little bit a little bit better. One of the things I like about Tennessee is that there's no state income tax, and I noticed in Mississippi, um, you guys have a pretty pretty low I I. I I hate to say reasonable tax system, but it was pretty low compared to some of the states around you and a lot of other states that have income taxes. Is there anything in Mississippi's tax system that you think needs to be changed? You ready to open that can of worms? <laughs> I guess so. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you have the next few hours. <laughs> well, as far as the tax code system goes, uh, we pay 7% sales tax and our state allows for individual counties and municipalities to charge a tourism tax. And in the libertarian community, that is something that has been a huge source of contention for some of the candidates in the state and myself included. But with, with regard to the tourism tax, my biggest problem with that, because this is a consumption tax. This isn't me going after you saying, if you don't pay this, we're going to take your house and your home. So this is a consumption tax. But my problem with tourism tax is, one, it's sold to the people that all these people that are coming into the community and that are using your restaurants and your hotels and your gas stations are going to be paying this tax since you're going to get all this extra money for whatever you allocate it for in the community. But the reality is 80% of the people who live I'm sorry, 80% of that tax is paid by the people who live there. Yeah, I mean, the tourism tax... The services in their own community. The tourism tax and only so happens have, if you're a tourist, but it's still there when the tourists are gone also. It's just a, it's just a fancy word yeah. for it. Yes, it's a fancy word for trying to get more money out of people who live there. So we end up having... We have 122 state house members, they have 52 senate members. So when you have one district that is covered by one, maybe two, excuse me, one, one county is covered by, we'll say like my county that I represent, Lowndes County, we have one, two, three, I think we have four different representatives, state representatives covering this area for the Lowndes County. And then you have um, one senator. So two senators, I'm sorry. So you have six members of the state legislature who actually represent this area. And then you have uh, over 100 other individuals who are making the decisions for the people who live there. I am opposed to that. I would rather this be a referendum on the ballot every 
single time for the people who live there for them to say whether or not we have a tourism tax. It should never be the decision of 100 lawmakers, 115, 120 lawmakers or more who don't live there to make the decision for the people who live there. So you said that you guys have a 7% sales tax, but is does it actually end up being more than that at the end of the day after the, the cities or local municipalities put their own tax on top of that? Do you actually end up paying higher than 7 most of the time? Well, so the, the tourism tax, like I said, it covers the hospitality industry, basically. And so sometimes it might tack on to the gas taxes also in the area. And so it really depends on what product you're purchasing as to how much the sales tax is. So if you're going to the grocery store, it's just going to be your 7% sales tax. But if you're going to go eat out at McDonald's, it's going to be in the city of Columbus, it's going to be 10% or 9%. I think they passed a 3% sales tax in this last session. And my county, my city, it's, it's right around 2% additional for a hospitality tax. And so it's sold to us to help pay for the um, parks and rec department. It's supposed to help with the the museum for the Black Prairie um, Blues Museum. And I can't remember the other stuff. Oh, it's like the chamber. But as far as taxes go, one of the, you said that you had been looking into some of the issues in Mississippi. And one of the issues with the campaign on the campaign trail right now statewide is whether or not we should be raising the gas tax. Hmm. So the gas tax is, as we know, is a recessive tax. And for your listeners, the recessive tax means that it hurts the um, middle class and the lower class more than it does the upper class. The upper class has the disposable income. It's not going to hurt them. They can afford to pay a little bit more. So when my constituents have to decide between their diabetes medication or getting their electricity cut off, and then you tack on having to pay more at the gas pump, that extra 10 or $15, even if it's a year, adds up. I can drive through different places in my district, and I can see individuals sitting out on their front porch in 110-degree uh, heat index weather in the hot Mississippi summer, sitting on their front porch because they have no electricity and because they have no air conditioning, trying to stay cool. And then these individuals still have to get from point A to point B somehow in order to get their medicine and get their food. That's going to hurt them. Well, one thing that we saw... I'm sorry, go ahead. So Mississippi has, I think it's like the lowest or at least second or third lowest gas tax rate in the country. And the state of Alabama just raised theirs. So our lawmakers say, well, we have to raise the gas tax to pay for our roads and bridges. Part of my platform says we have too much wasteful spending going on. We are paying people under the table. We are paying for corporate welfare projects. We are putting money into organizations and situations that we should not be doing as a government. We need to go in, rein in the spending, and find out where all the wasteful spending is and actually put it into the project that we're supposed to be funding. Well, yeah, um, it's it, it should be seen as a good thing that your, <clears throat> your neighboring states like Alabama are raising their taxes. I mean, if anything— Keep your tax low and get some of those people to drive over and get some gas on some of the border towns, <laughs> because what 
what we've seen uh, at back home where I'm from in Illinois is they raised their gas tax from 18 cents a gallon to, which I believe is Mississippi's also, but they raised theirs from 18 cents a gallon to 36 cents of gallon since a gallon this year. And what they've seen is that since Illinois borders like five different states, uh, people, if you live within half an hour of the state line, you're not going to buy gas in Illinois anymore. These the gas stations on the border towns on the on the other side of the border, their sales have gone up by like eighty percent since since Illinois raised their gas tax because Illinois borders Kentucky and Missouri and Indiana and Iowa and Wisconsin, and so we have all these border towns around in Illinois that are that are dying literally they're disappearing because of the high the high fees the high taxes in illinois and now the high gas taxes are actually killing the gas stations that are in illinois so i mean you guys you guys should take this as a as a win where maybe people are going to be able to drive over to mississippi if they live close by and come get some cheaper gas you know it's it's not time to raise your gas tax that's that that hurts everyone Well, we see that also even with the lottery. We don't have the lottery in Mississippi. We're working on it. By the end of the year, we should be having the lottery. But we have people that go to Tennessee, and I believe Louisiana has also, and purchase lottery tickets. So Alabama is going to only be coming over here because of cheaper gas, but they're going to be coming over here to get their lottery tickets because they don't have a lottery yet there. Well, that's interesting. (laughs) I didn't know they didn't have a lottery. That's a good way. You know, I'm not a... I'm definitely I'm not saying that people should go out and play the lottery, but at least that's a voluntary way to raise money for all of these services rather than taking it from people. It's people voluntarily putting their money into a system. No one's forcing them to do it. So you might as well institute a lottery and do what a lot of these other states are doing, which is keep half the money that comes in and and then leave the rest of it to pay out for people who win. But even in Illinois, they're raising a few billion dollars uh, off of their lottery system that are that can go to a lot of really great things. So hopefully you guys can, hopefully you guys can get a lottery system there. Man, I, I don't know if I want to go through there anymore if I can't stop and get any lottery tickets on the way. That's a uh, that's rough. No. Um, well, we we're, we're being we're being told that eighty million dollars of the lottery income is to go toward our roads, our infrastructure, and then anything on top of that is to go to education. And with the, uh, what is it, the casinos and whatnot, that was told to us to be told to be going toward education. And there's a lot of problems. We don't know whether or not that money is actually going where it's supposed to go. So when the government starts making more money, uh, there is the possibility that you're not going to necessarily get out of it what they claim that you're going to get. But when this gas tax situation started up, I and our roads and bridges are certainly our infrastructure problem here in Mississippi is a huge problem. It really is. And we are not taking care of the roads across the state like we need to be. And I approached my board of supervisors with this problem. I started looking at the petroleum tax in Mississippi. We get about $425 million from our petroleum taxes and about $300 million that goes to the Department of Transportation. And as I was working at this budget and to where the funds are being allocated, I decided to look at the code that allocated, you know, where appropriated, where the funds will go. And the 
counties, respective counties across the state get no more than, a, they can get more than $190,000. The, the code doesn't say that they can't get more, but there's some language in there um, pertaining $190,000. So if you look at the uh, disbursements annually that goes to the county for their infrastructure, our counties get no more than $190,000 every year. And the last time that that was written was 1962. It has not been amended since then. And look over in Alabama. They're getting a base pay of $550,000 per county every year. Granted, they literally have twice the population as Mississippi, but we have $300 million coming into the Department of Transportation with about $37 million as a base pay to the county of that money. And then there's another formula that they take and it's called the 514th rule where they allocate a little bit more money to each of the counties and then a smidgen to the municipalities. And so my county, Clay County, gets around $425,000 annually from the state to take care of its roads and bridges and, and the roads here. So the state takes care of, uh, the state has maybe 25% of the roads across the state as far as state roads go. And that, but Yet they pay our municipalities about 25% of their budget. They pay, not I'm sorry, not municipalities, they pay our counties. We distribute about 25% of the petroleum funds back to the counties. So it's just very, very unbalanced. And we need an overhaul of our code. Maybe not overhaul the code because there is not a cap on the 190. The 190 just says, I'm not going to go into that language. You have to look at it. It can be quite confusing. But we can, we have the ability to give more, according to our state code, to the counties, but we're just not doing that. Well, and sure, I want to know why. I'm sure if you got the right people in office, there are all forms of, just like what you're talking about right there, and then also all kinds of waste and fraud and abuse that is taking place when you have so many millions or billions of dollars that are that are coming in and out. There are so many opportunities for waste uh, all over the place, and normally uh, governments are not all that great at being very efficient. They're really great at creating a lot of a lot of waste, and so I'm sure I'm sure if you can dig through that budget, you'll find millions, hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars, that's being wasted on something somewhere. So uh, I think it would be good to get some people in office that are that are willing to take a look at all of this and not just go just not just keep doing the same thing we've been doing for 20 years. You know, that that's not, if it's not working, then it's time for some type of a change. And what I wanted to, since those were all the main platform proposals I looked at, what else is there that's going on in Mississippi that's affecting the people of Mississippi? Is there anything else that, uh, that you think needs to be addressed? Well, criminal justice reform is something that's a hot button issue across the country right now. And a lot of the, the states are looking at this issue. In fact, President Trump praised Mississippi for some of the reforms that we made, I believe, in 2014 and our code, but we're not following it. And and some reports did recently come out about the abuses that we've been uh, putting upon those who are imprisoned in our system. And in Mississippi, we have, you, you talked earlier, you had asked me about occupational licenses. So just this year, a, a bill was passed that made it easier for somebody who has been incarcerated and has been released 
serve their time to be able to get a license uh, if it, as long as it didn't have anything to do with the reason that they were imprisoned. That a licensure board cannot look at the fact that they are a former felon um, or you know, whatever their their status is and say, no, you can't get a license. So that that is something that's really, really good. They will help with recidivism because we know when someone gets out of prison, if they can't get a job, they're going to be very likely to go back into the system because at least when you're in jail, you have a roof over your head, you have food on your plate, and you have some health care. If you can't work, you can't eat, and you can't pay for a mortgage or rent, right? So it's really, really hard to adjust when you get out of the system, but we need to be looking at why we're putting them there in the first place. That is the first place that we absolutely need to start is why. But at the same time, though, even though I feel that's the first place, we need to be addressing the civil rights abuses that are going inside the prison walls, the corruption that's going on inside of our prisons, and the maltreatment of the prisoners by the people who work there, and the maltreatment of the prisoners by other prisoners, the extortion that's going on inside the prison walls, but yet the people who work there turn a blind eye to it. I've had someone contact me uh, recently and and talk to me about some of these injustices that are going on behind the walls and uh, them having had been um, a part of that system to some degree. And it was very heartbreaking to hear. You know, you know that it goes on and you suspect that it goes on, but to actually hear the stories and to read the news articles, even I shared one on my Facebook page yesterday talked about other inmates setting other people on, on fire and killing and bashing people's heads in. And this is not the treatment that we expect outside those walls. Why are we allowing it to continue inside the walls? If we're allowing our prisoners to be treated this way inside the walls, what does it say about us as a humanity and as a society? It doesn't reflect well in America if we're allowing this to go on. And we have people who have committed, supposedly committed, I I don't like using that word, because when somebody has something in their possession that the state decides you shouldn't have in your possession, whether that be 30 grams of marijuana or uh, moonshine spills, you haven't hurt anybody. But the state says that it's wrong or it's morally wrong. And we've decided that you just can't do that because we're just morally opposed to you doing that. That's the history of it. But now it's become, well, it's a crime. It's a crime. It's been ingrained in our minds from the time that we're a very small child that it's wrong. And you shouldn't do it. If you do, you're a bad person. (laughs) So changing the mindset and the hearts of the people, and it is happening. We are seeing it. We, when we see that people uh, in the 90s was, what, about 16% approval for marijuana legalization, and now we're up to over 60%. And the general population and over 80% of active-duty military members are saying, yes, let's let's legalize marijuana. So... Overall, you have we have this undercurrent, a change of, of people, and we need to allow it to keep going because these people 
might be using it because as a substance because they have a lost connection with society, like Johan Hari talks about. <laughs> or we don't we don't know the reasons why the pain in their body, like I mentioned, with the, my constituents who might use kratom to help them be able to survive in life, and we end up putting them behind prison walls. With, we call them the lambs. These are gentle, peace-loving individuals who haven't hurt anybody. And we're throwing them to the wolves. We're throwing them to the lions. And they changed over time. When I knock on doors and I see a woman open the door with an ankle bracelet on and, I meet, and, and I'm talking to them and they want to know how I'm going to be able to make changes in the state of Mississippi. And I ask them about their experience. They can't tell me. They break down in tears. And these are mothers. These are women who've been thrown to the wolves. And all I can do is hold them and let them cry on my shoulder and tell them this needs to change. Well, yeah, we... <clears throat> I think we have a weird thing in our society where we've we've criminalized some things and and while it might be you you mentioned earlier <clears throat> the state has decided that it's it's morally wrong or something that people shouldn't do and uh, my personal belief would just be that that's not something for the state to determine uh, that that really isn't and we also when you talk about just marijuana you know we've seen what happened when we when we made alcohol illegal during prohibition we saw how dangerous that got and then we see what's happened with the drug war and then we see like your state in mississippi where people go to prison for possessing something that the state says they can't possess and then you mentioned even with the licensing laws what's happened is they've gotten out of prison and then they can't get a job or they can't start their own business because they can't apply for a license and how do you ever expect people to ever better themselves after they do get out of prison, if you if you make it so difficult for them to ever get ahead after they've gone to prison, and I, I think we've seen that this is it's probably had a worse effect when we've placed this responsibility on the state to determine that people shouldn't do these things, and it really hasn't stopped anyone from doing these things really really at all. It's actually taken focus away from some of the actual problems, <clears throat> and it's put a lot of focus on just making sure that we prosecuted all of these crimes, but it hasn't done anything to ask the question, why are people doing these things? Why are people choosing to, why are people choosing to smoke marijuana? Why, and why is it so much worse than alcohol? Or is it really, you know, is it because the FDA hasn't approved it? You know, we have a lot of things that the FDA has approved that are far more dangerous than marijuana. Um, and, We've seen in a lot of these states that have decriminalized it. It's it's really helping. It's really helping a lot of people, and it's not really leading to more people doing the drugs. But what it is leading is, to, if you did get in trouble for it at one point in time, uh, you can actually still have a hope of having a better life afterwards. They're not just going to continue to destroy your life for the rest of your life, like some of these people that you're, like some of these people that you're talking about. So. Um, would you be in favor of like a few steps, you know, like maybe decriminalizing first off, or maybe not fully? I guess it's not legal in Mississippi, obviously. But what they, what I've seen in other states is they they went forward and said that they were going to decriminalize it 
um, but not make it fully, you know, you can't go buy it at a dispensary or anything. But if you decriminalize it, then you stop this, and you can also help all these people who have these crimes on their records that never hurt anyone in, in the process. So my hope would be that your, your goal there is to help some of these people actually have a route at having a better life rather than throwing them in a cage with a bunch of people who actually are terrible people who have hurt others, who have actually caused physical harm to other people in some kind of way. And these people have to learn to live with those people every single day. They have to harden themselves in a way to live with that every single day where when they get out of prison, they're not the same person anymore. They might be a worse person after they get out of prison. And that, yeah, we, we, we see that a lot. Let me share with you a story I was told recently, something that goes on in prison walls. And it, it, this is just extremely disheartening. These people who, who come in and are put in, in the prison system, and they're these gentle people, or they might have just, or maybe they, they did do something to harm other white, stealing something, but they're not a violent person. Uh the gangs, the prison gangs, what they do, they when a new person comes in, is they will they will rush this person up. The degree that they rough the person up might vary from person to person. And then they'll send pictures. They'll find out who the family members are, and they will send pictures to the family members of the person that just came in that they roughed up. And they will send a threatening letter, and they will tell them, unless you send me a a uh, prepaid, you know, debit card, you know, in this amount with, you know, certain stipulations, well, you know, it'll be worse the next time. So it's not just the person that's in there that's hurting, it's the families that are hurting. And then when the families are hurting, it hurts all of society. That could be some child school lunch money that the mom has to take from in order to put money on a card to take care of, to make sure that her husband who has been in prison is not being killed or beaten up. So the, the ripple effect across all of society is, is not known. It's not talked about, but we can feel it. And these are just some, you know, this is just one example of the ways that, that our system hurts us and what would I want to do? I want to repeal, not replace it with anything. Repeal the criminal code aspects that take nonviolent individuals or somebody who hasn't stolen anything or hurt anyone. Just completely repeal it. We talk about, we hear, we hear talk about reparations. What is re- reparation? It means to repair. Let's repair their life. This is reparations that we can have a real impact on right now people who are alive today the democrats have put it into a system a place uh, has been into place a system that has created these laws you know Bastiat says you know the law of the unseen well that's what we're experiencing right now a lot of individuals with good intentions created these laws but now we are suffering the unseen consequences that they didn't know about when they did it so we have a, a Democrat party who wants to turn a blind eye to the system that they've created and just look at things in the past. And then we have a Republican party who wants to be, ha, 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 let's puff up our chests and let's prove that we're tough on crime. 
Well, crime is defined by code. So if the code says if this is a crime, then you have to enforce it. Then yes, well, let's repeal it. And we don't have to be tough on these people anymore. We can be tough on crime when people are stealing things and hurting people. Yes. But let's not be tough on this kind of a crime any longer. Uh, do we want to allow it to be legalized and get permits or whatever it is that creates a black market? When people end up having to get a permit for medical marijuana or whatever, oftentimes they are losing the right to be able to carry a firearm. We're doing an injustice to our soldiers who have fought for us overseas, who have, you know, PTSD that they might be using medical marijuana to help with their anxiety. Have we ever had a mass shooting with somebody that has used marijuana? No. It's not the cause of it. So why are we saying that they're a risk to society? They are not a risk. They are somebody who's just trying to live. The Ninth Amendment, the United States Constitution, it says that all these rights that are not mentioned, the rest of the rights that are inherent in an individual. So William Blackstone understood that one of those rights is the right to self-preservation, the right to preserve your life so that you can live. We are guaranteed that right by the Ninth Amendment, the Constitution of the United States of America, and the third, Article 3, Section 32 of the state constitution in Mississippi also guarantees that right. So not only are we violating in Mississippi the Ninth Amendment, the Constitution of the United States of America, but we're also violating our state constitution by continuing to harm these people who are just trying to preserve their own lives. And it needs to end. Well, I could definitely agree with that. Now, real quick, because I don't want to take a whole lot more of your time. Have you seen any, have there been any special problems with being a libertarian in this in this election? Have you had to, had to jump over a lot of hoops to be able to be on the ballot or to, to even be able to be considered in this election? Actually, no. Mississippi is a beautiful state when it comes to ballot access laws. All I had to do was be a member of a party and put my filing fee in with the party and the party um, qualified me as a candidate and you know told the secretary of state yes she's a qualified candidate she's qualified to run as a libertarian in this race and that's it so i'm on the ballot in november i have been on um qualified since march 1st and i filed in like 15 minutes before the deadline because i wanted to make sure that there was nobody else that was going to jump in this race because i knew as a libertarian that I would probably not have a very good chance of winning if there was somebody else. But they will not run Democrats in this in this district the way it's gerrymandered. So I knew I probably wasn't going to have to go up against that. And my opponent was not being primaried. I knew that my chance to actually get Libertarian into the state of Mississippi in this district very high because my opponent is unpopular. Um, he, um, there are some other issues going on. I'm, I'm not, not going to talk about them when we talk about them privately, but the, um, the people here want some change. He's made some decisions with his voting record that the teachers are unhappy about in the district. He has voted for charter schools. He has voted for school vouchers. I would not vote for either of those. And just because it's based off a of principle, I'm not trying to, you know, just say I'm going to garner votes. It's based off of some of my principles. And 
Yes, I realize that the other libertarian, little L, libertarian-minded individuals that are currently elected do vote for the vouchers, do vote for the charter schools, and they have the reasons for that. And I do see even in the Libertarian Party that there is somewhat of a divide on that issue uh, as to how to approach it. Because if you don't vote for them, then you're not pro-choice, pro-school choice. Yes, I am. I just think there's a different way to get there. I don't agree with that way to get there. Can we talk about incrementalism? Well, maybe this is the incrementalism. No, because you're still throwing government money at a system. You're still using government money to do something. So my opponent has voted for for the vouchers, and he has voted for the charter schools. So that he has upset the teachers. The tourism tax thing, he upset a lot of people because he didn't vote for it. But I will tell people I vote for, well, I wouldn't vote for it either. So there's only him or myself on the ballot. So you're going to have to pick another poison for yourself. Uh, the challenge that we experience in the Libertarian Party in Mississippi is just we don't have a whole lot of knowledge in this state as to what the Libertarian Party is. And I think that that's the issue around the country, too. People will see the word libertarian and think it means liberal because that word is in there. So it's, it's a marketing problem with the party itself um, statewide and nationwide. I'm having to do education about that as I meet people and as I knock on doors. I've had a couple of people say, oh, libertarian, I'm a liberal. Like, well, no, great, I love your vote, but I just want to, you know, give you, you know, liberty is the root word of libertarian. I'm talking about freedom and justice for all. I want to go there to work for your rights. Yeah, well, that's, <clears throat> that's something, I think the Libertarian Party has a, a little bit of a messaging problem, and uh, it really is a message that I think would resonate with a lot of people, even the people in your district, uh, 37 in Mississippi, that the Libertarian Party is all about putting, literally putting the power in your hands for you to make a better life for yourself and not to be reliant on the government to let you do what they say you should do, not to give you a leg up if they think you need one, not to put a bunch of strings attached to everything that you want to do, but to actually put the power back in your hands to make a better life for yourself. And man, it sounds like you have a lot easier time than we do here in Tennessee, because in Tennessee, you've got to get like 25,000 signatures to get on the ballot as a libertarian. And uh, it, uh, it's it's very, very difficult to, to get on the ballot here. It's uh, I think for... For the other parties, they require like a uh, hundred or so signatures to get on the ballot, and then for the Libertarian Party, the state requires twenty-five thousand. Uh, so they've they've definitely kind of uh, instituted a war against the Libertarian Party, uh, and as a form of protest, they actually put uh, twenty or thirty uh, independent candidates up for governor in the last election because independents didn't have to get those signatures. So you had to scroll through like three pages of governor options when, during the last election, which I thought was hilarious for the Libertarian Party to do. Um, but it, it seems like you have at least a better situation as far as that's concerned in Mississippi. So I'll give you this <clears throat> one last little bit here. You kind of already did a little bit of it, but why, why if, if I'm in District 37 in Mississippi, why am I going to go vote for you? On November 5th, it's going to be a day to remember in the history of Mississippi because this is going to go down the history books as the first libertarian elected to the state of Mississippi. The first libertarian going to Jackson, Mississippi. We have one libertarian currently serving as mayor of McLean, Mississippi. His name is Steve McCleskey. But why is it important for a libertarian to go there? We have a state 
that has been spending your hard-earned tax dollars in ways that it is not being held accountable. It is taking this and is wasting your money, your Schools are not being funded appropriately. Your roads and your bridges are crumbling and failing, and you have far too many regulatory burdens being enforced and being put upon you so that you cannot thrive. You do not have the freedom to try to be prosperous in this state. Your children are leaving the state because they see no hope for them, and it's time to put somebody in District 37 to sit in that seat with fresh ideas, with solutions to the problems that we have instead of continuing to circle us around the mountain over and over and over again. So if you really want change in Mississippi, you need to send Vicki Rose to the State House of Representatives in Jackson so she can be the voice fighting for liberty unashamedly. Well, she th- will fight for everybody's rights. Thank you so much, Vicki, for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I will once again ask all of our audience, if you're in Mississippi, if you're in her, her district, go look for Vicki Rose on the ballot on the 5th of November. Do not forget that. So thank you so much, Vicki, for being here today. Thank you. Can I put a plug in for my website? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I will, I will link to anything involving you on, on the show notes for this podcast also. But yeah, what's the website? Well, if you can go to vote for Vicky, that's F O R V I C K Y, voteforvicky.com, you can find my issues. There's a raffle that you can still purchase tickets for. It's for I'm extending that to drawing the raffle on the arts festival here. And you can donate right there. So I cannot win this without name recognition. I need to purchase a newspaper, radio, and TV and some large format signs to get my name out there. I'm doing what I need to do, knocking on doors and meeting people as much as I can. But as we know, name recognition is the name of the game. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Vicki, for being here. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Folks, once again, I just want to say a big thank you to Vicki Rose for taking the time to go through all of those ideas, all of those policies, all the issues that are facing the people in her district and in her state for taking all that time to talk to us about that. You can you can really tell you can really tell that she cares deeply about helping the people in her district. So what I want to ask you to do is go to voteforvicky.com. That's vote the word for F O R and Vicky V I C K Y dot com. And look over her website and what you'll see on there is there's a there's a button for a donation link. And it really is, you know, while we don't like to ask for donations, people really don't like asking people for money or for, for help, um, that it's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing when it comes to running an election. Because these people who have been in office for 20 years already, well, they've already got the support of all the big businesses in their area, all the huge donors. They've got all the big money, all the old money behind them, and they can really afford to run a, a lot higher visibility campaign. And what Vicky needs, what other libertarian candidates need, really is help with getting their names out there, getting these messages out there, uh, help with getting signs, help with some money for running Facebook ads when it comes to time for election on the 5th of November. So just go on the website and she's got donation links. You can do five, 10, 15, a hundred dollars, whatever you want to do to help her actually reach the people in her district and let them know 
that they don't only have one option when it comes voting day. They've actually got another another option, and perhaps this option is a far better option that they really haven't considered yet. So if you really care about getting this word out there, getting getting this party out there, these ideas out there to the masses, then we're going to have to start putting our money where our mouths are. Okay, We're going to have to start supporting these candidates that, that need to run Facebook ads or that need to buy signs to put up on the roads because the other people, they can afford that, and they're going to do it, and they're going to put up signs with their faces and their names on them, and we need to... We need to make sure that the candidates who actually hold our ideologies are able to go out there and run the same kind of campaign that everyone else can. So once again, you can go to voteforvicky.com. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. Uh, and that's all I'm going to ask you to do today, not to go purchase our merch or not to go do anything like that. But you can follow us on at Good Morning Liberty on Instagram at Good AM Liberty on Twitter. You can look us up on Facebook, Good Morning Liberty, or go to goodmorningliberty.us if you want to find some more articles on economics and politics and everything else that we care about. So if you guys do all of those things, go to Vicky's website. If you guys do all of those things, then we'll be right back here again tomorrow. Until then, have a good day and a good morning, Liberty.